And when I ask you, what, what does Jesus' death mean to you? And there might be some in this room, and it means nothing to you. It's a story to you. Um, it's something to do with church. It's something to do with religion to you, and that is all. And uh, you mentally have heard the story of Jesus' death, but it means absolutely nothing to you. I want, I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm not going to preach through this, but I want to read it to you, because there was a time in the Old Testament, um, there was a sacrificial system that God had instituted. It's no longer necessary today, but it was instituted by God for his people, the nation of Israel, uh, so that they would understand they were sinners, and they would understand that sin requires death. And, um, but the sacrificial system could never, it could never take away sins completely. Look here, Hebrews chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse number 1. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, speaking of Jesus, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. We've been studying about that body in John, right? The Word, the eternal Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus here is speaking in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 6. He continues, it says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, speaking of the Bible, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Speaking of covenants. By the which will we are sanctified. We are set apart for a special purpose through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering, speaking of the Old Testament system, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so what, what does it matter to you that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in human flesh, came to this sin-cursed earth and became our sin? And he bled and died on a cross, and he, he suffered greatly, but he took our sins upon himself and was judged for our sins. And in doing so, he did so so that you and I could be sanctified. We could be set apart from ungodliness and wickedness and sin. We could be set apart from that and all the shame that comes with it. We could be set apart unto righteousness and godliness to be used and to please the Lord forever. I want you to look back with me to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And... A passage I often refer to almost every time when we gather for the Lord's Supper. Normally, and I'll do this later, when the deacons come to the front before they pass out the grape juice and before they pass out the unleavened bread, uh, for you to partake of, um, I'll, I'll read from a couple verses from this particular passage. But a good question would be this morning, 
uh, what is the purpose for the Lord's Supper? And, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why do we do this in the first place? Uh, is it just religion? Are we just going to the motions? Does this make us feel better about ourselves? Why do we do it? And then another very good question is, are you prepared? Are you prepared to partake of the Lord's Supper? And so let's, let's read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to begin in verse number 17. It says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions. Schisma is the Greek word. We get our English word schism from it. There be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you. Heresies just means opinionated people that are talking, grouping together. That they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. We don't just gather together to have a feast, is what he's saying. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and the other is, another is drunken. What? He asks in verse 22, Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God? Do you esteem it lightly, the church, the body of Christ, and shame them that have not? Are you shaming those people who are poor? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, means irreverently, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, irreverently, eateth and drinketh damnation, destruction to himself, not discerning, not valuing the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, speaking of by God. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry, wait for, receive one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That's not why you're getting together. That's not why you're partaking of the Lord's Supper. You're not eating to, be, to fill your stomachs. But ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order, Paul says, when I come. Let's pray. And then I want to walk through this passage with you. I want to look at it verse by verse. And I want to answer those questions that I already asked this morning. Why do we participate in the Lord's Supper? Why do we take grape juice and unleavened bread? It doesn't really taste good. Why do we eat these things and drink this? And the bigger question even than that is, are you prepared to partake? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we've read through your word, some of it this morning. Lord, you want us to be reminded of your sacrifice and sending your son to die for us. And so he has told us to partake. And Father, I pray this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would search every heart in this building. And Lord, especially for those who are born again, those who are saved. Lord, we love you, and yet, Father, we walk sometimes in our flesh, and we give in to temptation. Father, lest we partake unworthily, 
Lord, I pray that you would shine a spotlight into the depths of our souls this morning. And Lord, I pray that as a result of this service, there would be a greater purity, and a greater love and adoration for you. I pray that there would be a greater fear of you that would lead us to living right before you in a way that you can bless us. Well, Father, we understand that this, these truths are for our good and for your glory, and help us to see that this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Look back with me to verse number 17. Verse number 17. I notice, first of all, from this passage that, there, that Paul had a concern. He had a concern because there were divisions and heresies in the congregation of the church at Corinth. I'm not aware of any uh, schism within the body of Trinity Baptist Church. I'm unaware of anybody not liking one another or saying bad things about one another. I'm, I have no, under, no one's told me anything about that, if there is something like that in this church. But at the church at Corinth, there was. And you look at verse number 17, he says, Now in this that I declare unto you, what I'm about to say, he says, I praise you not. We all like to be praised, don't we? We all like to be told uh, that you're doing well. Don't, don't you like to hear that? Great job. Uh, Paul couldn't say that to the church at Corinth. He says, I praise you not that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul actually says, when you come together, church at Corinth, it's actually doing more harm than it is good. Isn't that sad? Isn't that a terrible testimony? When, when the congregation at Corinth was getting together, it actually was, there was a lot of pride, and there was a lot of arrogance, and a lot of selfishness. There was a lot of uh, haughtiness, looking down their noses at one another. They were bragging. They were exalting themselves. And Paul's about to talk to them about the Lord's Supper, and he says, I can't say, great job. I can't say, hey, you're doing well. Keep up the great work. I can't say that. I can't praise you can't because when you get together you're actually doing more harm than good in verse number 18 he tells us that a church can meet together but still be divided it's possible for a group of people to gather in a room like this and technically be together but not be together you understand what i'm saying right it's possible it's very sad there have been a few times um, when i was traveling in evangelism where i would and I would preach in different churches almost each week, a different church. And some churches had the sweet smell of unity. And it was always a great blessing and encouragement to me because it was obvious that those believers loved one another. And you know what that was a testimony of? They loved Christ. And it was a beautiful thing. And it was obvious. Within a week's time, it would be obvious to me, this church loves one another. They sacrifice one another. They esteem one another to be more important than themselves. And there were a few times where I was in churches where the church was coming apart. And in a couple of situations, the pastor, kind of in de- desperation, uh, said, Hey, Evangelist Ferguson, could you come and preach meetings? And it was almost, I can remember being there and going back to the trailer and talking to Cindy and saying, There, there isn't any hope for this church. This church is coming apart. Now, no hope might be an overstatement. There's always hope if people will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and humble themselves. But there had been so much pride and arrogance and evil words spoken about one another, and the church literally was coming apart. People were leaving, and the people who were staying were staying to establish their positions, to hold their ground, and they were going to be the, the winners in the fight. And... There was tension. You could, you could feel it. Should that ever be the characteristic of God's people? No. It should never be the character traits of God's people. Never. Division within the body of Christ? That's an, that's an oxymoron. That, that doesn't make any sense. Are there divisions within the body of Christ? There shouldn't be. Paul was, Paul was addressing this in verse 18. He says, For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And again, I mentioned earlier that word divisions in the Greek is schisma. We get our English word schisms from it. And Paul says, I, I partly believe it. So a church can gather, 
but be divided. By the way, the only way that happens is when, when you and I operate in our flesh. When you and I walk in our flesh, there's division. And it's possible for every single one of us in this room to walk in our flesh. Every single one of us. No matter what our title is, no matter how long we've been saved, possible for every one of us to walk in the flesh. And when that happens, there's schism, there's division. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look back with me to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, would you? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse number 10. Thank you for bringing your Bible this morning. It's good to hear those pages rustling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. I'll read down through verse 12. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, Paul's begging them, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions. There's that word schisma again, a split, a gap. Something, it means to be rent in two. That there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together. Mended, restored, and in the same mind and in the same judgment. That is, we, have the, we, we all have the same purpose. We all have the same resolve. Now, the truth is, within a congregation like Trinity Baptist, there are many different spiritual gifts. There are uh, different personalities. There are different perspectives. That's a beautiful thing. It's called the church. It's called the body of Christ. But a church ought to have the same purpose. And that purpose, if I want to get really practical, is to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And when we walk in the Spirit, we're actually walking in Christ, in His power, because it's impossible for us to do this by ourselves. We're walking in Him. And He and God, our Father, is glorified and He's honored because we're saying, as individuals, we're saying, no. I'm not going to do what I'm being tempted to do. I'm not going to do what I, in my flesh, feel like doing. And each one of us as individuals are to be saying this. And that wasn't the case within the church at Corinth, at least in 1 Corinthians, the first letter to them. There was so much division, and the problem, what really was, they weren't bringing honor and glory to the Lord. Why? Because they they were religious but they were trying to do a form of religion in their flesh. And there was all kinds of schism and division amongst them. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. There's debating and there's wrangling and there's uh, strife. That's what he's saying among you. Verse 12, Now this I say that every one of you Seth, every one of you are saying this. I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, or I of Cephas, and others were saying, and I of Christ. And so you had within the church at Corinth, there were people, they were arguing with one another, and some were saying, well, I'm a follower of the Apostle Paul. And others were saying, well, I'm a follower of Cephas. And some were saying, well, I'm a, we're followers of Apollos. And others were saying, we're followers of Christ. You know, it would be great if everybody were followers of Christ. Now, the Lord's Supper really kind of puts before us very vividly what it means to be a follower of Christ. And in short, that is, every one of us are selfless, not selfish. We don't walk out of this building today and each one of us just go about our own business and saying, you know what, whatever comes tomorrow... I'm going to do what my flesh leads me to do. That's not what Christ did. He was selfless. And he was willing to suffer to please the Father. He was willing to deny himself to honor his Father. And you and I are called Christians. We're called little Christ. Just recently in my own life, I think it's become much more vivid to me the attacks of Satan upon his body, the local church. 
it's become much more, I think, uh, obvious to me how wily, how cunning Satan is, how vulnerable we are as individuals. And I've got to tell you, it's, caused, it's given me pause for concern. It's made me think about you as men within this congregation and you as women within this congregation. It's made me ponder your marriages and the condition of your marriages and how we're training up and what kind of examples we're being for our children. And just because we have a, a comfortable place to meet and just because there's been some good things that have happened in, over the years does not mean that any of us are above failing or, or falling prey to the cunning and wiles of the devil. Uh, look over to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse number 3. It's possible for church to, to meet together but be divided. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 3. He says here, For ye are yet carnal. That's what it is when we follow our flesh. We're carnal. Whereas there is among you envying. We're looking at each other. Sighing. Exhaling. Desiring what the other has and strife. There's fightings and divisions. There's that word schisma again. And ye are not carnal. He asked the question, are ye not carnal and walk as men? This is who you are. And, I could ask, and we ought, ought to all ask ourselves that question this morning. Are we walking in our own flesh? Are we walking as men without the power of God? Are we trying to go through this life living by a code of ethics or certain standard or a certain doctrinal statement? Do we declare ourselves as members of Trinity Baptist Church, but are we, are we or is that all we are? Because if that's all we are, we're just carnal with a set of standards. Or are we Christ's followers? And that really is the question. Are you And am I going to follow Christ? That's the question. Look over to Philippians chapter 4, and we'll come back to 1 Corinthians next. Philippians chapter 4, it's not far away. Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians, Paul actually calls out two women for their the divisions and the disagreement that they're having. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. You know, people that we truly love, we want to stand fast in the Lord. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And then he says, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche, these two women, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. <laughs> I don't have any women in, in mind this morning that I'm going to name, or any men for that matter. I don't know if I'd have the guts to do that. But don't test me. <laughs> Verse 3. He says, and I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, so this fellow laborer, help these women which labored with me in the gospel. So there had been a time when Eudeus and Syntyche had labored with the Apostle Paul. Would you not consider that to be a success if, in your life if you had been able to labor with the Apostle Paul? Would you consider yourself or that opportunity to be a wonderful opportunity and a success? Would you? Yeah, that'd be wonderful. These two women... The Holy Spirit gives these words to Paul, and Paul recalls how these two women had labored. They had been fellow laborers with him for the gospel's sake. But now they had started to quarrel with one another. I, I wouldn't have wanted to be this fellow who Paul's asking uh, to help these women. I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be that guy. With Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are written in the book of life. They were, they were born-again women. You can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But they were born-again women within a church, the church at Philippi, 
they had been fellow laborers with, with the Apostle Paul for the cause of Christ. That is, they had been walking in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit of God at one point in their lives, but there had come a point where now there were divisions. And Paul's talking about this as he, within the context of the Lord's Supper, and he's saying very clearly a church can meet together but be divided. And then in verse 19, he tells us that a church is divided, and he tells us why it's divided. Look at verse 19. For there must be also heresies among you. That is the only reason a church is divided. When people, when people walk in the flesh and start to live their lives and make decisions and nitpick others based upon their own opinions, that is why there are divisions within a church. There must be heresies among you. There are opinionated people who are grouping together within your church. And that's what Paul says, and how sad. But notice the latter part of verse number 19. That they which are approved, that, that's a, a word that's used for testing metals. That they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So God allows opinionated people to show themselves to reveal who they really are. That's what it's saying in verse number 19. There must be also heresies among you in order that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Those who are true, truly followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are made obvious because they're not a part of the opinionated groups who are having a schism with one another. Isn't that interesting? We all could learn from that. We could all say, you know what, let's make a decision today. I'm not going to allow myself, I'm going to set up some standards in my life I'm not going to allow myself, Lord, help me not to allow myself to be a part of an opinionated group of people. But Lord, help me to be a humble follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's what Paul is getting at here. And so every, every week when the church was assembling here at the church at Corinth, a really a distorted version of the Lord's Supper was being observed. In verse 20, he says this, When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's not to have a feast. The Lord's Supper, in verse 21, we see it kind of been turned into a potluck. Everybody was bringing their own food. And, uh, and look at verse 21, what he says, For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry, and another is drunken. This was happening. This was happening. So, the church of Corinth was getting together. They're calling it the Lord's Supper. They're, they're saying, we're obeying Christ's command. That ordinance given by Christ to his church to partake of the Lord's Supper. To remember his death, his suffering. To remember that the blood of Christ was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And to remember that his body was broken and beaten. And that he suffered for our salvation the church of Corinth was saying, we're getting together and we're obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in partaking of the Lord's Supper. But they were getting together, as we see here in verse 22 and 21, and they're very selfish. And some people are coming with extravagant meals, gourmet meals, and they're putting out their feast and their family is eating it and they're not sharing with others. Meanwhile, poor people are coming in and they have nothing to eat and the rich are not offering to the poor and some people were coming in, and they were drinking alcohol, and they were literally becoming drunk. Verse 22. What? <laughs> Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? And I've told you before that that word despise means to pull down, to minimize its importance, to look at the body of Christ the house of God, the dwelling place of Almighty God, and to esteem it lightly, the local church. Despise ye the church of God, and, and shame them that have not. What shall I say to you, Paul says? He says, I don't know what to tell you. Shall I praise you in this? And he says, I praise you not. And so there was a great concern on the part of the Apostle Paul because of the divisions and heresies within this church, and their selfish behavior was shameful. Why is selfish behavior shameful? I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't we, shouldn't we look out for ourselves a little bit? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't, shouldn't each one of us, to some degree, make sure we get ours and make sure we're 
fulfilled and make sure that, that I mean, we, we get what we want in, in this life? You know, that attitude is nothing like the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. It is the opposite. Jesus Christ came for one purpose, to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. A price had to be paid for for your salvation and for my salvation. And what was that price that had to be paid for our sin debt? And the answer is death. The Lord Jesus Christ came for one reason, that was to give his life to pay the price so that you and I could be freed from our sins. Completely selfless. I've talked to you before about the men and women in our, in our armed forces who are willing to give their lives to maintain our freedom. Not every man or woman in the armed forces has that attitude of selflessness, but many have been willing to give their lives so that we could be free. The Lord Jesus Christ was willing to give his life so that you and I could be free. And these people at this church were living their lives completely for themselves. Their mindset, their thinking completely revolved around them. What do I feel like? What do I want? What do I need? How can I be better than them? And it was completely wrong. And Paul says, I, what, what am I supposed to tell you? I can't praise you. I can't say good job because you're so carnal. You're so fleshly. We all ought to ask ourselves the question, and I don't stand here this morning looking at you thinking, wow, what a bunch of carnal people. I don't. I don't think that at all. I think a lot of you. I think very highly of you. But I also know that every single one of us can give in to carnality. And I also know that fleshly living is very subtle, and it creeps in little by little, decision, choice by choice. And all of a sudden... Or way off course. There's also a command, I notice, to partake of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 23. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. I've already told you about the Lord's Supper, is what he's saying, and Christ is the one who's taught me that the Lord Jesus, the, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take. Eat, this is my body. This is a picture of my body. We don't believe that the bread is human flesh, okay? That's not what he was saying. This is a picture of my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In verse 25, he continues, After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. Look again at verse 23, the beginning part. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Evidently, Paul had already told the church at Corinth what they were supposed to do, and they weren't doing it. Does that ever happen in your life? Where you know what to do? you don't do it yeah you're not alone in that so what instruction does God have for us now and before I read we look at these verses a little more intently I want to tell you right up front it's not an option not to partake I'll put it in the positive if you're a child of God you should partake Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're a child of God. You're born again. You know that. Heaven's your home. But you know you're struggling with something. And as we'll see a little bit later in this passage, he gives a warning. Don't partake with known, so, known sin in your life. And maybe you've kind of fallen into a rut where when the Lord's Supper comes along and, and here comes the grape juice or here comes the unleavened bread past you and you're a little concerned. You don't want to partake unworthily and you, you know you're struggling with something, you've been going back and forth a little bit, and so you just abstain and just let it go on by. Can I, tell, can I warn you as your pastor, don't do that. You're disobeying the Lord if you do that. Part of the reason Christ did this, part of the reason he instituted the Lord's Supper, is so that he would bring to head in our lives 
and bring us to a point of decision. He wanted us to be brought to a point of decision. He wanted us to be confronted with our sinfulness, maybe where we've been walking in the flesh. He wanted us to to be confronted with our sin and his suffering and his blood and his flesh uh, and his sacrifice for us and the high price that he paid so that we could be saved from the sin that we're struggling with and so that we would look to him again and live the life that he saved us to live. It's not okay not to partake. You're not in better shape. You're not in better condition to abstain from partaking as a born-again child of God, to let it go by and to walk out the doors living fleshly. That's not okay. Look at verse 24, and I read it, but he, he tells us point blank. He says, take, eat. And then later in verse 24, he says, this do. You see it there in verse 24? He says, take, eat. This was a command. This do in remembrance of me. In verse 25, he says, this do ye. So participating in the Lord's Supper is not optional. When he says in verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he break it. Speaking of the bread. Um, In those days, bread didn't come pre-sliced in the package, you know. And so what Christ would do, and what he did, is what he, he... he would tear off a piece and he would pass the loaf and, and someone else would tear off a piece and they would pass the loaf on to the next and the next person would tear off a piece. They would go around and everybody would tear off a piece. And it really is a picture of the, the broken body of our Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. And the inference there is whoever partakes of the bread of life, like partaking of the water of life, you remember, which we know is, is believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is saved by partaking of this grape juice and this unleavened bread. No one is saved by partaking of these elements. These are just a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He is, he is the, the water of life. But as this bread would be passed around, it really was a picture. And think about this with me for just a moment. Jesus gave thanks for the impending breaking of his human body. Now the disciples thought they were just celebrating the Passover, and here comes the unleavened bread, and it comes around, we're all tearing off a piece, and we're remembering the deliverance of God's chosen people out of the, the, the land of Egypt hundreds of years ago. But the Lord Jesus Christ had, had in his mind that within 24 hours, he was going to be in, in the tomb. He knew that this, particular, that this very night that he was talking to his disciples and passing this bread around and giving thanks, he knew that he was going to be wrongfully tried and wrongfully accused. He was going to be betrayed by Judas with a, with a kiss, and he was going to be uh, forsaken by those who said they were the closest of followers of his. He knew that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to be nailed to a cross, and that he was going to take upon his body all of our sins, and that his own father was going to forsake him and reject him. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he passes this bread around, knowing that it's a picture of his body being broken, his suffering on the cross of Calvary, he gives thanks. His body was going to be battered and bruised and broken beyond recognition. He was going to be punched and slapped and crowned with thorns and scourged, whipped until his flesh hung from his body to the bone. They tore Jesus' beard from his face. He was nailed to a cross of wood and every bone of his was wrenched out of joint. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, as he passed the bread, he gave thanks. Christ trusted his Father. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, later on this particular night, Jesus would pray to his father, and as his physical body was straining under the load of what was coming, he would pray, If thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He trusted his father, and he understood what his work on the cross was going to accomplish beyond the pain and suffering of his physical body 
the Lord Jesus Christ gave thanks because there was a wonderful joy of anticipation of a creation of a spiritual body, and that is us. You know, when the Lord Jesus Christ was passing that bread that day and that, this particular evening and giving thanks, and it was uh, representative of his body being broken, and he passes it and it goes around and he's giving thanks, knowing what it's signifying, I believe with all of my heart he had you and me in mind. In fact, later on in the Gospel of John, we'll read about the Lord Jesus Christ praying for you and me. He had us in mind. He knew what you and I would go through. And he counted us worthy of the sacrifice he was going to make. And I echo again the song, the question, the men saying, Is it nothing to you? Is it nothing to you, the sacrifice that Christ made? Look at verse 25. We need to remember his blood. In verse 25 it says, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus knew that his blood was going to be shed before sundown the next night. And he held up a cup of the fruit of the vine, which would be unfermented grape juice. And it was a symbol, a picture of his blood. His blood would confirm the new covenant, the new testament between God and man. Under the old covenant, God put his law on tables of stone. Under the new covenant, God put his law in our hearts. The old covenant said the guilty lawbreaker must die. The new covenant says Jesus Christ shed his blood and died for guilty lawbreakers. He paid the full penalty for our sin, and he has given to us his righteousness. You know, God was able to give us complete forgiveness, even guilty as we are, to every person who believes upon his Son. And every time we take communion in church, we are remembering that complete forgiveness of sins was possible and only possible because Christ bled and died on the cross. Look at verse 26. He wants every one of us to be a willing testimony of him. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, however often that is, he doesn't tell us to do it every week or every Sunday night, or every Sunday morning. He tells us to do as often as we do it. You do show the Lord's death till he come. Every time we come together and partake of the Lord's Supper, we are testifying. It's a testimony. When you partake of it, you are giving a testimony to all of those around you that you have experienced in your life the benefits of Christ's suffering on that cross. Can you, can you say that you've, you've experienced the benefits of Christ's suffering? Have you, for, have, you, have you experienced what it is to be forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future? I have. Does it mean anything to you? Those of you who are born again, have you, can you say, have you experienced God living in you by his Holy Spirit who convicts you of sin when you're wrong? Have you experienced him encouraging you in your life? Have you experienced him never leaving you, never forsaking you, even though we've forsaken him on occasion? You see, when we partake, as it says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. You show the Lord's death until he comes, and he is not dead the Bible says. He lives. He rose again three days later. And beyond that, the Bible tells us in Philippians that he is seated on the right hand of the Father. He's waiting until the world has made his footstool, until he rules and reigns for all of eternity. There's a caution, though. Look at verse 27. There's a caution against partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. Some of us here this morning are concerned about this. Some of us this morning have a fear in our hearts. There's a, there's a sinking in the pit of our stomach because we know how we've lived. And there ought to be a concern, but there's a way forward. Look at verse 27. We're not to partake of the Lord's Supper carelessly. He says, Wherefore, whosoever 
shall eat this bread, which is a representation of Christ's broken body and suffering, and drink this cup, a representation of Christ's blood that has resulted in our forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Whoever partakes of this bread and cup of the Lord unworthily, which means irreverently, flippantly, carelessly, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So don't approach it carelessly, and I tell you that. Don't be careless. Don't be flippant. I love to have a great time. I do. I love to laugh. I love to make funny jokes. But this is not a time for that. This is not a time for that. It's a serious offense to God. Why? Because his sacrifice, what he gave for our salvation, was very serious to him. What he has in us, do you know that the Bible calls us Christ's inheritance? We're his inheritance. We are what he has inherited. Now, are there other things that he's inherited as well? Do you think he's done well? We're all, we all should be slow to answer that question, I suppose. But you know, he treasures us so much. He loves us so much. So, while we may not come in perfection this morning, because we do have flesh, here's the point of not coming flippantly or carelessly. Here's how you can avoid coming flippantly and carelessly. Come honestly. Be honest. You know, one might say, well, I'm not being flippant. I'm not being careless. Look at me. Look at my face. It looks serious. What about your heart? Are you being honest with God? Are you being honest about how you're living? Are you being honest about what you're looking at? Are you being honest about what you're reading, what you're saying? Are you being honest about your relationships? You know what he wants? He just wants you to be honest with him. Just be honest. Be honest and thank him for sending his son to die for you and for me. Be honest and remember his sacrifice. Be honest and remember his suffering. Be honest and remember that without his blood, there is no way that you and I are forgiven. And be honest about how we're living. You know, the believer that partakes of the Lord's Supper with known sin in his heart is literally inviting God to chasten him. And none of us want that. But the Bible tells us that whom God loves, he chastens. So don't partake of the Lord's Supper carelessly, flippantly, dishonestly. Look at verse number 28. He tells us to actually examine ourselves. He says, but let a man examine himself. Now, this is our responsibility. It's not my responsibility to examine you. And I don't stand here this morning examining you. I don't look out at this congregation and think, I wonder if they're right. I don't. This is between you and God. I don't look at you that way. But you have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility to examine me, you to examine you, and be really honest with yourself. The word examine means to test or to scrutinize. When when the men take, and they'll take the bread first, and they'll walk back, and there's a little bit of time. The organ or the piano will play, and there's a little bit of downtime. I'm not saying anything, and, and you're waiting for the bread to come, and then it comes, and then you're waiting for other people to get their bread, and then you're waiting for the deacons to sit back down, and then you're waiting for me to say something, and then we eat it, right? We put it in our mouths. There's a little bit of downtime there. Can I just encourage you, don't let that be a time of downtime. You close your eyes. As soon as you've gotten that bread, you've got to be somewhat alert of what's going on around you, right? But once that bread comes along and you pass that, that, that uh, plate on to the next person, uh, even before that, one thing that I will do, and I, and I took some time this morning before I got out of bed and took some time backstage to examine my own life. And I'll take some time this morning while it's going out to you and coming back to me. And I'll say, Lord, would you search my heart? Why? Because I love him. I'm so thankful for his sacrifice. I don't stand around here like I have arrived or that I'm I'm holier than thou. That is not my perspective. 
but I am forgiven. But I do want to live up to that life that Jesus Christ has for me. And I want you to live up to that life as well. Not so we can look at other churches around us and say, I wonder why they do that. That's not the point. Or to look around at one another and think, I can't believe. That's not the point. The point is that we are recipients of his salvation, that we are going to stand before him, and that we have this life that God calls a vapor, and it's not very long to live. And we can live it in a way that will please him. Don't you want that for your family? Don't you want that for your children? Well, let it, let it start with us as adults. Let us live this way. So he says, don't partake unworthily. Don't partake carelessly. Examine yourself. Then there are consequences if we, if we won't examine ourselves and we just eat. And we're not honest with God. In verse 29 it says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, irreverently, casually, careless, like, like what Christ did really wasn't necessary, like what he did and how I live really don't matter, says we drink damnation to ourselves. And that refers to judgment or condemnation. Galatians says, He that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap condemnation, destruction. Not discerning, not valuing the Lord's body. And then he goes on in verse 30, he says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And so, as your pastor, I speak to you this morning. As I have thought about and examined my own life, I speak to you with concern for you. Examine yourself. Don't make excuses. Don't compare yourself to other people. Let us be honest with God this morning. You be honest with God this morning. And the wonderful truth is this. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you realize that every single one of us could walk out of this room 15 minutes from now completely right with God? You say, but Seth, I know myself and I struggle so much. Listen, don't play the role of God. God has saved you. He has given you his Holy Spirit to ensure that you are saved. And his Holy Spirit's not going to give up on you. Don't play the role of the Holy Spirit. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is just to respond in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Right now, in this service. So agree with God. And your agreement might say, Lord, I know what I'm doing is sinful. I don't know how I'm going to stop. That's okay. You just agree with God in this service. And you leave the results up to him. And you know what? He's going to ask you to agree with him again in the future.